guys, we are back with our continued teaching in the book of Revelation. Now, the last time we were here, we dealt with, or actually, we began in our teachings concerning the churches in the region of Asia Minor, or we'll simply call it the letters to the seven churches. And we talked about the church of Ephesus, which was the desired church. It was the apostolic church basically occurring over a period of roughly around 30 AD to 100 AD. And basically, the Lord had primarily good things to say about the church of Ephesus. It was a doctrinally strong church. Remember, Jesus said that you tried those who called themselves apostles and found them that they were false. So it was a doctrinally uh, pure church that held on. Remember, Jude said, let us contend for the faith, the once and for all faith that was given unto the saints. So it was a doctrinally pure church. It was a church of the time of the apostles. The only issue that the Lord had was so quickly did they begin to fall outside of love for him, that love for Christ, the love for the word of God. And he, therefore, he admonished them to return to their first love. But anyway, enough of that. Let's move on to our second church, which will be the church of Smyrna. Now, this particular section, although it is short, it is quite powerful in the message that the Lord gives to that particular church, as well as his application for Christians throughout every age. Okay, so let's just simply get started. And to the, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this. Now let's just stop there and look at what he is beginning to say. First of all, the letter, the addressee, is to the church of Smyrna. Now the interesting thing about Smyrna is that Smyrna means myrrh. And then there's a wonderful thing. Now, myrrh was basically a, a perfumed oil, a perfumed oil. It was a very common perfumed oil. But what is interesting about myrrh it is that it was used in the anointing of the tabernacle. That is the tabernacle in the wilderness used for spiritual services unto God. The tabernacle was that item that was dedicated for the very presence of God. It was erected to, to mean God's presence, his continual presence among his people. And so myrrh was used in the tabernacle. Also, we find that myrrh was used in the anointing of the dead and preparing bodies for dead. And these two things become wonderful examples for us when we consider Jesus our Lord. He himself is that tabernacle. He is the dwelling of God. And this is the point that John, the, the writer of the Gospel of John, tries to make when he begins to say concerning Jesus and we be, that how we beheld his glory. Remember, the tabernacle in the wilderness was the what? Manifestation of the glory of God. Jesus, when he was walking amongst his disciples on this planet, what was he? He was a manifestation. He was a physical manifestation of the glory of God. And he also used that same term, that idea uh, that he 
tabernacled among us. And that's when they said in John that he dwelt among us. But the actual word that is used is giving reference to that Old Testament tabernacle and Jesus tabernacled among us. That is a beautiful picture of Jesus with respect to the tabernacle. But not only that, watch the oil. Do you remember when Jesus was born and that the wise men came from the east and they brought gifts to the family of Jesus? Remember what they bought? They bought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh used to do what? To anoint or used in the service of the tabernacle, but also myrrh was used to anoint the dead. How fitting it was that that manifestation of God, the message that it was given to Mary and, and even to Joseph at that particular time, that this holy one of God would pay a devastating price. He would die. And so myrrh becomes a wonderful picture of Jesus himself. From the moment that he comes into the world, the anointed one of God, until he leaves this world in a wretched death, a death for our sin. And so therefore his body is anointed with myrrh. But never, and, and, and that even within itself becomes a wonderful picture to the, the people in the church of Smyrna about the things that the Bible, and, and I'm a little premature, that they will suffer as well. But let's go on. So that's the picture we have. Uh, uh, that is of Smyrna, what it means. Myrrh, okay? And that is the application that we can derive from that full context of everything that I just mentioned. But anyway, so now let's look at the picture of Jesus. Now he, remember we said that when we look at Jesus, the, the, the descriptors, that we'll find concerning Jesus, all of them will be taken from chapter one of the glorified son of man. And these descriptors come from verses 17, chapter one, verse 17 and 18, when Jesus calls himself the first and the last. And the reason why that speaks of his eternality, that speaks that he is the eternal one. He is one who is at the beginning of history. He is the one who is at the end of history. Before anything started, he was, or we can even say he is. And when all things per se come to an end, that is the history of man. He still is. He remains. He is the first. He is the last. He is the eternal one. And so this comes to those in Smyrna to offer them hope when it looks at when they look at Jesus, especially as we move into the context of what this particular letter is about. It is designed to give them hope, hope of an eternal life because the one whom they believe in Jesus himself has what eternal life. He is the eternal one the first and the last. And then again, he who was dead and has come to life, that he who was dead speaks of a horrible death, the death of his crucifixion, the sufferings that he went through uh, even before he made it to the cross, all the way up to the point of the cross, even unto his death. And so this also speaks concerning, as we'll see, these those who are in the church of Smyrna 
in the great deal of sufferings that they will do. That Jesus, they are a companion to Jesus in his sufferings. Okay? They are a companion to Jesus in his sufferings. And as he also died, we'll also talk about that too, some of them will die. But nevertheless, he rose again. Notice, he has come to life. So therefore, again, it gives them hope. Hope in Jesus' eternality and hope that although they suffer, they will rise again. And this is important for us even today to understand that even when we do suffer for the cause of Christ or we suffer in this life, if our hope is in Jesus, as he lives, we will live. As he rose, we will rise again, regardless to what was done to our bodies. I don't care if we were cremated. It matters not. We will rise again. Okay, we come back from the dead. But anyway, no more preaching, but let's just get into the text. So he continues to say, this is what I have to say. Verse number nine. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, remember, according to the structures of letters, that once we move on from the identification of Christ, he begins to give them a commendation. This is the general structure of the letters and the commendation. What he has to say good about the church is I know your tribulation and that is the affliction and the suffering. So the church of Smyrna was under a great deal of suffering. Oh, guys, by the way, I forgot to tell you, the church of Smyrna deals with the age, deals with an age from basically 100 A.D., basically, to roughly about 313 A.D. It deals with this prophetic period, okay? Remember, we said earlier that the church of Ephesus, okay, let me just slow it down for a very quick review. Remember, we said all seven churches deals with seven ages of the church, which will be seven periods of the church from the moment of the church inception, that is from the day of Pentecost, A.D. 30, Acts chapter 2, all the way up to the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That is the period of the church. During that period, there will be seven ages, seven predominant, distinct ages of the church. Okay? And these letters to the church prophetically represent different ages in the church. The first we've already dealt with Ephesus from basically 30 AD to 100 AD. And that was the apostolic age. Now we are dealing with Smyrna and we're dealing with the age of 100 AD to roughly 313 AD. And this the period of the suffering of the church, the great sufferings in the church. All right. Okay. But nevertheless, this is applicable to Christians in every age and Christians who suffer throughout the entire church age. This letter comes to give them encouragement and comfort. But anyway, so going back to verse number nine, what did he say? I know your tribulation, that is your affliction. Philip, is the word. Your tribulation and your poverty, 
but you are rich. Now notice what he says, that poverty. So there was extreme poverty. We can kind of sometimes see this in the book of Hebrews when it talks about those Jewish Christians who had lost their uh, wealth and uh, uh, lost their property because of simply being Christian. And so here is basically the persecution, whether it's persecution from Jews or predominantly what I think is the case here, persecution from Gentiles, a loss of property and inability to participate in guilds and trade guilds because you had to, for a lot of people, they had to, uh, uh, to at be emperor worshipers. That was this whole issue that was going on a lot of times and, and, and worshipers of other idol and pagan gods. And so, and these emperor worships and pagan worshipers, they had control of the trade guilds. And so if you did not go along with this type of idolatry, you were not permitted to participate in the marketplace. You couldn't sell things. So that was one of the issues as well. It's going to be a growing issue. Okay. But not only that, but because they were Christians and they were being, their property was being confiscated. They were being blamed as we know under Nero who blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome and persecuted the Christians. So they lost a great deal of things. They were very, very impoverished, but notice what Jesus said, but they were spiritually rich. How counter, that is almost counterculture to the preaching that goes on today. In the preaching that we have today by John, uh, Joel Osteen and, and Creflo Dollar and so many more, it is always an association of riches and godliness. And we find that that's not even true according to scripture. When Paul talks in 1 Timothy and said that the false teachers had a false concept thinking that godliness was a means to gain. But notice what Jesus is teaching here in their abject poverty. They were so spiritually rich. Okay. So that's a wonderful thing that you don't have to being wealthy is not a sign of God's blessing or being poor is not a sign of being cursed. Notice Jesus said what they were physically, they were economically poor, but yet they were so spiritually rich. And let's continue. And then he continues to say, he talks about the blasphemy of those who are Jews. Now, this could be basically one or two things. This could be Jews who were in the region of Smyrna, who were persecuting the Christians in the church of Smyrna. And this is what it could be relating to here. And it calls their synagogue, the synagogue of Satan. Okay. So it could be that, or it could also be the, the Romans used to call themselves the people of God. And that's because the Roman emperors considered themselves to be God. And many times, oftentimes, they instituted emperor worship. And if you did not worship the emperor, you could suffer great penalties, even death. And so sometimes you would have to get some incense and place upon uh, 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 and say that Caesar 
is God, that Caesar is Lord. And so therefore, that was the idea of uh, submitting yourselves or acknowledging the divine nature of the emperor. Okay, so and because of this, sometimes the Romans, not sometimes, there was a fact in history that Romans called themselves the people of God. So is this what we're referring to, what John is referring to when he says the synagogue of Satan? It could be one or the other. However, the text seems to suggest that these were literal Jews who were in the vicinity of Smyrna and persecuting the Jew, persecuting the Christians in the church of Smyrna. And this is, and this is nothing new. We see this uh, oftentimes in the book of Acts. And we can even see where Paul himself was licensed by the Sanhedrin. Remember Acts chapter 9, when Paul was given legal authority to go beyond Jerusalem to persecute the Christians. So this is what I believe is the case. But nevertheless, what is important to see is this particular activity who is behind it is Satan himself. Notice what he says. He says they are of a synagogue of Satan. Now, this will come out even more as we continue. OK, so that is his commendation that they endure the suffering, endure persecution, endure great poverty and yet hold faithful to the name of Jesus. Now. Remember, we also said that usually after the commendation in every letter, there is a condemnation. Christ says, okay, I have a problem. Okay, this is the good thing that I have. He just stated that. Then he would also follow and say, but now this is something I do not like or disapprove of. This church, the church of Smyrna, along with the church of Philadelphia, but we're going to only talk about Smyrna now. Smyrna in Philadelphia, it is the only church there is no condemnation. In other words, Jesus doesn't have anything bad to say about this church. So therefore, we and that's a wonderful thing to say for our Lord not to have anything negative to say. And we should also pray the same thing too. That when I stand before Jesus, when Jesus judges my life, I do pray that he has nothing bad to say, but you got to live it. You just can't pray that you must live that in order for him to say that. But anyway, so with no condemnation, let us now continue on with the exhortation that Jesus gives to the church of Smyrna. Verse number 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Okay, so now he encourages. That's the part of exhortation. He says, don't fear what you are about to suffer. Now, here's what you have to understand. He not only knows, remember he kept saying, I know, I know, I know. He knows the suffering of the church, but also it is the permissive will. It is the determined will of Jesus, the Messiah, the head of the church, that they should suffer. In other words, they are not suffering 
against his will. They are suffering because he is allowing them to suffer. He is allowing them to suffer. And I guess, you know what? And since I'm here, sometimes you would say, well, why would Jesus allow us, allow them? And remember, the application is also even to us too. Why will he allow them or us to suffer? The Lord allows us to suffer for disciplinary reason. You'll find that in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, when the writer takes from Proverbs and talks about how a father deals with or chastens his son. God allows us to suffer sometimes too for preventive reasons. By preventing, that means something. You'll see that, for example, when the apostle Paul talks about the, that, how God permitted a messenger of Satan, a thorn in his side to cause him to, to buffet him, uh, uh, to cause him problems or whatever. And Paul said that he used this messenger of Satan thorn in his side so that Paul would not be exalted above measure, that he wouldn't get full of pride and begin to think of himself greater than he ought to think. And then you'll find out that God uh, uses sufferings and, and, and sometimes to, for us to learn how to be better saints of God. Okay. Two things on that issue. Remember what the Bible said in the book of Hebrews concerning Jesus. It's not this. Now notice guys, I say about Jesus himself. What did it say? How that he, Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So we even learn more so how to be conformed into the will of God, not by good times, but by difficult times, God uses these things as teaching elements, instructing elements for us. And then finally, I guess for the fourth example, I talk about, remember on the Damascus road to God said concerning Paul, that he would learn that through the many things of sufferings in bearing forth my name to the Gentiles. And I just kind of generalize that guy. He'll learn through the, through the many things of suffering. In other words, in Paul's testimony of Christ, okay, that testimony, that witness of Jesus was more refined by way of his sufferings. So God uses our sufferings for our good and for the furtherment of his own will. All right. And so, and, and, and suffering guys refines us. It remove it's like gold and silver taken from the ground that's full of dirt and other impure elements. Suffering is like fire that removes the dross. It removes the impurities from our life. It makes us better. Okay. And so God permits, God even uses suffering for that reason. All right. I'm sorry, guys, I went on that tangent, but I've often seen a number of Christians that are concerned and wonder why do Christians suffer? Of all people, why do we suffer? Well, just remember those four reasons that I delineated just a second ago, and maybe that'll help you to remember and understand and even appreciate when we suffer and never be angry. Never be angry. Why? The Bible teaches in everything, give thanks in what everything give thanks for this, whatever it is you're going through. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus about your life. But anyway, but let's finish. 
So he was saying, I know, don't fear what you are about to suffer to let them know that they will continue to suffer and suffering is coming for, is still coming. And behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. All right. So then he says, now the architect of their sufferings is Satan, the architect, the one who is behind it. But here's what you got to remember. Jesus is sovereign over Satan, even though Satan is doing it to the hurt and detriment of God's people. He himself is still bound by the sovereign will of Jesus. Remember in the book of Job, what happened? And so the Bible talked about the day when the sons of God came before uh, the became before God to present themselves before God. And who came in amongst them? Satan himself. And God began to have a dialogue with the devil and asked him, where are you going and what are you up to? And of course, he says, I'm going to and fro upon the earth. He was looking to cause damage, hurt, or as Jesus said, the thief comes not but to but for to kill, to steal, and destroy. So that is his motive, and that's what he was doing on that day. And what did God say? Have you considered my servant Job? And what was the devil's response? Yes, I have, quite naturally, but you have a protective barrier around him. You have a hedge about him. So the whole point was God lowered the hedge and permitted Satan to attack him. But even though Satan was permitted to attack Job, notice God still limited what Satan could do. At first, he said, you can only attack thus far. You can only, you can only attack the outward things that he owned and things of that nature. Then Satan came back and said, skin for skin. And God says, well, okay, fine. You can even attack his body, but you cannot take his life. So the whole point is, he was restricted. That is, Satan was restricted by God, right? And But even though he was restricted by God and Satan's desire was to cause hurt, it was still under the sovereign control of God. And so here is Jesus talking to those in the church of Smyrna. He tells them, Satan is coming to hurt you, to imprison you. Some of you are going to die. But nevertheless, all of this is in my control. All of this is in accordance to my will. So sometimes we may have to suffer and die for our Lord. And always know this one thing. God is keenly aware of everything that's going on in the life of his people. God is aware of every sickness in our body. God is aware of the trouble and affliction in our family. God is aware of everything that we suffer in this life, especially what we suffer for his name. And when we do suffer, it is still within his will. Nothing. The devil can, he has, he has never, and he never will have power over us. Don't you remember what the false prophet Balaam said concerning the children of Israel when King Balak hired Balaam to curse the people of God? Remember what Balaam said? Even if the king should give him his whole house, I cannot go beyond the command of God. And what was the command of God? I cannot curse 
whom God has blessed. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are the blessed of God. The devil in hell himself cannot do you any harm. It is in the will of God. So therefore, we always say and let us say, Lord, whatever you got to say, whatever you got to say, because what do we know? All things are working together for my good, for my good. So we say amen. But anyway, enough preaching. Sorry about that. Let me get back to the text. So all he was simply saying was Satan is the engineer behind all of these things. But Jesus is the sovereign God who is permitting it for the good of the church of Smyrna. And so he says the testing will be for 10 days. They will have tribulation. Now, whether some take the 10 days and want to say because roughly from about 96 AD to about 300 AD, there were 10 emperors of Rome who persecuted the church. All emperors didn't persecute uh, Christians, but there were 10 of them who brought the church under severe persecution. Okay, possible, but I don't think so. I think the 10 days means 10 days or the idea means it is a short period of time. So here's the thing. When he says 10 days, that means that Jesus as the God who is in control, he will determine how long the church will suffer. He will determine what afflictions the church of Smyrna will go through. And he will is the one to determine when it's enough and it should go no further. And in here is that there will be a limited time of suffering according to what the sovereign Lord Jesus has decreed, okay? And so then he continues and says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. And so he urges that in their great sufferings, even if it meant that they should suffer and pay for their witness, pay for their faithfulness, pay for their belief that Jesus is the Messiah. If you have to pay for it with your life, then do so. No matter what, do so. Hold and maintain your faith in Jesus. And the promise is, and if you do, he will give you the crown of life. This is the Stephanus crown. This is not the diadem. This is not a diadem. And, and that is the royal crown. That crown is only worn by Jesus. This is the victor's crown, Stephanus. It is an overcomer's crown, okay? And so this is the special reward to the saints who hold on. But we also have to remember too, remember when Jesus said in the gospels now, he who loves his life shall lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. And this is what they experienced. This was the prophetic word also to the church of Smyrna. Okay, so let's go on. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So now we finally end with the promise in the letter to the church of Smyrna, and he, and as we all, as he always says, he who hasn't here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, meaning once again 
This message is applicable to all saints in every age, not just the Church of Smyrna, but even to us today. Hear what this word says. Obey and respond accordingly. And basically, since there was no condemnation, his response was, hold on. Just hold on. No matter how much you suffer for our Lord, even if it means to die, hold on. And then he says, again, he finishes with a promise. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And this is the reference to the lake of fire. So if the people of Smyrna, the Christians of Smyrna, had to suffer and even die, that is the first death, all right? But if they remained faithful to Jesus, they would not lose their lives to the second death because after the first death is a resurrection of the dead, okay? But then the second death, as will be referred to later on in the book of Revelation, it is eternal separation from God. It is the lake of fire. So his promise is, if you hold on to Jesus, even though you may suffer and even die, when you rise again, you will live forever in the presence of God. All right, guys, thanks for joining me on that one. We'll catch you next time. Have you subscribed yet? What are you waiting for? Subscribe now.